You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would teach us from the word this morning. Help us to better understand uh, the truth that Jude was seeking to communicate to believers during that time. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to interpret it correctly and rightly apply it to our time today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have kids that are part of the kids' class, they can be dismissed to the back. Jessica will meet them there to take them. We began our study of Jude last week talking about the major theme being to contend for the faith in the face of opposition. To contend for the faith in the face of opposition. We said there's some reasons that this book is relevant for us today. That we're in a battle for our minds and the only weapon of defense is truth. That there is clear teaching in scripture that false teachers are here, apostasy is coming, and our only defense against these attacks is truth. We're also seeking to establish elders here at Sovereign Hope, and we have to make sure that we establish godly shepherds who take their job seriously and embrace the responsibility of what Scripture has to say. In 1 Peter 5, 2, Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples To the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In Titus 1 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. These are godly responsibilities that elders are supposed to embrace within the local church setting. And so as we seek to raise up elders in our church, we have to make sure that we're raising up the right type of people. And we're going to contrast what Scripture has to say, what we've just read, and see what these false teachers uh, were, were doing instead, how they were acting and how they were leading We also said that we're a small church that must embrace the congregational responsibility of holding to the faith. That the writers of the New Testament seem to always put the responsibility back on the congregation. Not just the elders, but the members of the local church. When false doctrine is accepted within the local church, uh, responsibility falls on its members. And so we have to embrace truth. And so this book is relevant for us. And then we're also trying to implement what we learned in Jonah. We want to be... Faithful to advance the gospel. And if we're going to do that, we have to know that people have already advanced false teaching. And we highlighted some examples last week. The Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they're in our apartment complexes. They're in our neighborhoods. They're establishing Bible studies. They are establishing um, outposts of false teaching. So not only do we seek to advance the gospel, we're also contending for the faith as we have to, as we have to work against false teaching. But it's not even just as blatant as that. There's a lot of subtle false teaching that has been embraced within our culture um, that's not consistent with the faith. And so we don't necessarily have the same struggles as they have. Yes, we have false teachers, but what was going on at this time is you had more of an itinerant ministry where people were traveling around city to city and being given a platform to speak. We don't have that, right? Like you're not in danger of us bringing in some random person on a Sunday morning to preach and then you've got to really evaluate is this a false teacher or not. 
We don't function that way. So we don't have itinerant preachers traveling around with the same frequency as they did during this time. Now, we have a lot more accessibility to it because of Christian bookstores and uh, podcasts on iTunes, um, Amazon. These false teachings are so readily available to us, TV, radio. So the threat is still there. It just looks a little bit different. But then also we interact with people that have been influenced by false teaching, and we maybe can't trace it to a specific false teacher. We have over 100 churches represented at Trinity. And more and more, when I interact with students, I realize that they are exposed to false teaching at their churches. Churches that would come under the veil of evangelical-type influence, but there's false teaching that's in there. Um, We had a girl who was studying the Reformation in history class. So our teacher was walking through the Reformation, talking about the challenges that Martin Luther brought against the Catholic Church, um, his teaching on justification by faith, and she came up to the teacher afterwards and she said, I don't want to go back to my church. We don't teach that. I go to a Catholic church and we're not teaching that gospel. And, and she was really wrestling with, how do I go back to a church that is teaching the false doctrines that we are talking about in history class? And so more and more I'm aware of the fact that people who we interact with that maybe label themselves as a Christian have been shaped and influenced by a teaching that is not consistent with the faith that we're to contend for. And so we can't even just assume that by talking to somebody and somebody saying, yeah, I go to church, yeah, I'm a Christian, that they have been protected from this false teaching. So we're in a real battle, and we have to embrace the responsibility to advance the gospel, but know that people have beaten us to it, and we've got to work against that as well. We said that Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, brother to James. Uh, He's the one who writes this. We're not told exactly who he writes to. We highlighted the fact that his purpose for writing shifted from celebrating the commonness of salvation to defending that salvation. He realized that in in order to to fruitfully write to these people, if he wrote just celebrating the commonness of salvation, there were people that had a voice in that church that would rejoice in that commonness as well. And instead, they needed to be confronted with the fact that they were not part of that common salvation, that they were teaching a false gospel. We looked at last week, verses 1 through 3. We said there's a call to contend, Uh, that's given to us there. But in calling us to contend for the faith, we said that Jude starts off by giving us some comfort, that we don't have to fear false teachers if we're truly Christians, that God is sovereign and in control of our salvation. Verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. So the appeal there is to fight for the faith, but he says in verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is keeping us, there's no man that can take us from him. There's no spiritual power that can take us from him. And so Jude gives us that assurance up front that we as true Christians are not truly in danger, except for the fact that we are called to participate in that perseverance. We're given a sufficient faith. The faith that we contend for does not need additional revelation. So when people knock on your door saying that they have additional information from God that we need, it is false is not consistent with the apostles' teaching. But we do have to exert full-on effort to contend for this faith. Which brings us to verse 4 this week. We're going to cover a lot of material today. And we could, we could spend a lot of time going off on different tracks. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's discussed here. A lot of Old Testament stories that are discussed here. 
And if we wanted to, we could camp out here for a long period of time and just kind of go off on different trails, different rabbit trails about what's being discussed here. There are things and, and additional details that I'm going to give you today that I think can be known. Like if, if we really spent some time studying this, there's probably more answers that we can get than I'm going to give you today. But what I want to do is take the purpose of what Jude writes about here, give you the details that I believe are important, and give you the truth that he was trying to communicate that's important. So there's some things that we're going to leave unanswered, not because it's not important. I think it's stuff that we could know if we spent some time studying it. I just don't know that we need to know it for what Jude's trying to communicate. And we'll see some of that when we get into it. Why should we contend for the faith? Jude answers that question for us here in verses 4 through 16. And he does so by drawing our attention to the past. He does this by drawing our attention to the past. The poet George Santayana said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So Jude is going to show us truth that is true for all time. And he's going to reference previous Old Testament stories and apply them to his day and age. And they still apply to our day and age as well. His answer for why we're to contend is found in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There are dangerous people lurking who want to destroy the faith. And Jude is going to, verse 5, now I want to remind you Although you once fully knew it. Jude says, I'm going to give you some information here, and it's not new information. I'm not here to bring to you something that you're not already aware of. He's basically saying, I'm passing on to you the faith that we're to contend for, the faith that's been passed down by the apostles. So I'm not here to be a new preacher with new information. He says, I'm going to remind you of stuff that you're already aware of. And we see this pattern from other New Testament writers, reminding people of truth that they're already aware of. Second Peter 2 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Okay, so this is further evidence that there are people that are lurking that want into our churches to destroy us. In First Timothy four six One through five is a warning about false teachers. And then Paul tells Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So Paul says, you need to make your church aware of these things. Remind them of these things. There's benefit there. Second Peter 1, 12 through 15 Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter was faithful to reiterate over and over the same truth, the same faith. Not new information, just a continual reminder of old information. 
Jude does the same thing for this group of people that he writes to. He says, you're already aware of this, but I'm going to remind you. Who are these people? Who are these people that we are contending against? Who are these people that we are called to look out for? I think it poses a good question for us to answer today. What is apostasy? We're going to use that term, apostasy. It's the falling away of the faith. Now, we talked last week about our belief here at Sovereign Hope is that if you're saved, you are saved. That, that Once saved, always saved. But faithful living is evidence that you're truly saved. So while we would say people do not lose their salvation, we will say that people claim salvation and then show later in life that they never had salvation. So they did not lose their salvation. They simply proved over time that they never received salvation. Now, Sarah asked a good point, a good question last week. How does this relate to the sower and the seed? So let's look at Matthew 13 together. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus expounds upon the meaning of the sower. In verse 18 of Matthew chapter 13. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. This is where the birds come and ate the seed. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. I want to highlight those last those those two that show some signs of salvation but then fall away. The rocky ground and the thorny ground. One is shown to have no root, the other one is shown to have no fruit. And we're going to talk about no root and no fruit throughout this passage here in Jude. But ultimately what you have happen here are people that receive the word, seem to respond to the word, but then when given time to grow, can't sustain it because the Holy Spirit's not indwelling them. Now, the Greek words are different for receiving the word. So the rocky ground that receives it, the thorny ground that receives it, it's a the word that's used there. It's far less intentional and far less serious than the word that's used for the good soil. That receives the word. So the indication there is that there's a different type of receiving. So it's not that all three get saved, two lose their salvation, and one stays saved. It's that all three hear the word, one truly receives it in a saving way, the other two take hold of it more from an exploratory standpoint. They may not verbalize that, but they never are really all in. They never submit their lives to Christ, they never really submit to His Lordship. They show that they never have submitted to their master with the lack of fruit and with the lack of root in their life. So Jesus explains that, yes, there are people that are going to come to your churches that are going to claim to be saved. They're going to claim to respond to the gospel. And then over time, they're going to fall away. They're going to make choices and decisions, and they're never going to come back. And it's indication that they were the wrong type of soil, that their heart was not prepared the way that it was supposed to be. They did not receive the word in a saving way. 
And it's evident by how it gets choked out. It's evident by how it doesn't take root. And we're going to see that's ultimately what happens with these individuals. Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 discusses this issue as well. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to be their own harm and holding him up to contempt. It says that ultimately there comes a point, this would, this would kind of fall into the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit where someone rejects full truth. They've been exposed to the Holy Spirit. They've been exposed to gospel teaching. It's the person where, at the end of the day, you're like, I don't know what else to say to you. Like, you're not lacking information. You understand the gospel. It's just a matter of heart now. Are you going to submit to it? The author of Hebrews says, when somebody has outwardly submitted to it, but not inwardly, and they end up walking away, ultimately there's nothing left to do for them. There's nothing left to tell them. There's nothing left to communicate. They've got everything. Their only hope of salvation they've walked away from. And really their only hope is for the Holy Spirit to change that, to change their heart, to change their perspective on the gospel. They ultimately have to take responsibility and submit. We see that these people in Jude that we're to be cautious of are the type of people who maybe for a time appeared as Christians, but have since shown themselves to be unchristian. In the way that they live. Let's highlight a few things that this passage says about these people. Number one, they are ungodly. They are ungodly. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people. It's people who take the focus off of Christ. Anything that's promoted over Christ is not the faith that's been delivered. From a false teacher standpoint, these would be people that highlight... Uh, the health aspect that maybe God can bring, the wealth aspect of what God can bring. It's the type of person who preaches sermons, but Christ seems to be absent from the sermon. It's a, it's a ministry that's generated to create money. Christ is not being exalted. This may not, this may not come, you may not be able to expose this and see this and say, wow, this is ungodly. But at the root of it, the absence of Christ shows it to be ungodly. Number two, they pervert grace. They pervert grace, Jude tells us. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. John Calvin said, It's bad to live under a prince that permits nothing, but much worse to live under one who permits everything. So some people want to to view God and his instructions for life as a as a means to hold us back. Satan wants us to believe that, that God has uh, a desire to kill our joy, to kill our happiness. And so he puts restrictions on us. He gives us commands to obey, and it holds us back. We want to be free people that can make our own decisions and make our own rules and our own laws. And yet we know that living in a country like the United States that claims to be a free country... We have more laws than many other countries that are out there. What we understand is that it does take laws to give opportunity for freedom. And we recognize those laws to be good. If we live under a prince who permits nothing, we submit ourselves to a dictator who rules everything. And that's not a good situation. But to live under a, a prince who allows anything and everything to go, 
is not a good place to be either. So we can be very thankful that God has given us instructions and parameters with life so that ultimately it can be enjoyed to the fullest, which is at the heart of what the, the people who founded our country and the laws that they established for here. It's how we can enjoy the United States to its fullest within the parameters needed so that our freedoms aren't violated by others. God, or Jude says these people are perverting grace. They are communicating that because God has saved we have license to live however we want. They were gutting the faith of its moral imperatives. There was no conformity to Christ. You could conform to whatever you wanted. There was no call to be like Christ. Because the moment you call somebody to be like Christ, you are calling them away from what their flesh wants to do. And these people were perverting grace. They were giving license to people because that's what people want to hear. These teachers were giving license to people to live however they wanted. It's called antinomianism, false teaching that sprung up at that time. And Jude says these people are ungodly. They're perverting grace. They don't understand saving grace. Their passions are left unredeemed. The flesh cannot be restrained by these people. And so they give themselves over to it. This is contrary to what Scripture tells us about Faith and salvation and, and the way that we live. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, again, you don't have people necessarily walking around in your life that are going to word this false teaching in the way that we're talking about this morning. There aren't people that go around saying, yeah, because I'm a Christian, I'm allowed to do whatever I want to. They don't verbalize it. They just live that way, right? I mean, if somebody verbalized that, it'd be very easy to expose it. Like, are you serious? Like, you really believe that? Like, I can show you verses that are contrary to that. People don't typically go around verbalizing this false teaching. They just embrace it and live it. They make choices and decisions. They live in sin. It's the, it's the people that I referenced that, that post Bible verses and, and post good things about God and they're living with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. It's like, ah, like how, how, how there, there's a disconnect there. Like there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a decision that's being made that's sinful and yet you're claiming things and, and, and claiming a relationship with God and there's a big disconnect. You're living in sensuality. You're living in your lust. You're not submitting to God's plan for these issues. But you're doing it under the, under the guise of, I'm a Christian, I want to follow Jesus. So it's not as blatant as what we're talking about necessarily, but it's there. Number three, they deny lordship. They deny lordship. They deny our master, Jesus. Titus 1, 15 and 16 says... To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So they go around claiming to be Christians. They go around claiming to have salvation. They go around claiming to understand the gospel. They go around claiming to love Jesus, but they show they don't by the way they live. They deny his lordship. Maybe not verbally, but ethically. Ethically, they deny Jesus as Lord. On a side note, it's important to note that, again, that word Lord, um, it's the same word used in the Septuagint, the Greek, the Greek Old Testament, for Yahweh. 
So Jude is connecting his brother Jesus. He's connecting his brother Jesus with the Old Testament God of Israel. Same. Same God. Don't miss that point there. Jude says they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Number four, they claim divine revelation. How does this happen? How do these type of false teachers infiltrate the church? How do they steer people away from Scripture? Verse 8, yet in like manner these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh. These people claim to have divine revelation coming from God. They cloak their deception by claiming it is from God. Jude says, don't listen to them. In fact, Moses gave this same admonition to the people in Israel. He says in Deuteronomy 13, Verse 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Now, we all know that a good prophet, if he says something that doesn't come true, then you're not supposed to listen to him, right? Like, that's clear. Moses says, even if you have people that show up that say things and predict things and do things that do come true, if they tell you to go after other gods that you're not familiar with, you don't listen to them. Where does that power come from? Where does that ability to perform things and predict things come from? It comes from Satan. So Moses says, I don't care. I don't care what the Mormons have to say about what's going on on their inside and how when they read the Book of Mormon, it burns on the inside that it's true. I don't care what Joseph Smith saw, right? Like, I'm fine with admitting that some angel came to him and said, go look for these books. But it's a different God. It's a different gospel. Moses said, don't listen to these people. You follow the faith that's been passed down, and if it's different, you ignore anything else that comes your way. Paul says if an angel shows up and tries to communicate to you something that we didn't communicate to you, don't listen to it. But these people had an audience. They were gaining ground because they were claiming, God told me this. God told me this. And maybe they were even showing powerful demonstration that verified that maybe God was talking to them. Our criteria for truth is not what a preacher can or can't say and do and perform. It's what God's word has to say. And if he deviates from it, it doesn't matter what type of power he demonstrates. We're called to stay away from it. These people were falling prey to it. Number five, they seek immoral desires. They seek immoral desires. They dream these dreams, they defile their flesh. They live in uncontrolled passion. We talked about this in 1 Thessalonians 4, what God's will is for our life, our sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. We're called to control ourselves in the way that honors God when it comes to sex. That prohibits sex outside of marriage. That prohibits homosexual sex. Even if there are desires that somebody wants to claim to have. We got into a big overblown discussion in my class this week about this. I don't have a problem with somebody telling me I was born this way. 
I have desires and I was given them by God. Now I'm going to correct some of that thinking, but the fact is we are born with a sin nature. I'm born with desires that I don't want to have. I'm born with desires that are in confliction with the Master and Lord Jesus Christ. But he has called me through the power of the Holy Spirit to submit my sinful desires to him. That I am not permitted to live however I want to, even if those desires are present within me. I'm called to submit those desires. Yes, we're all born with a sin nature. So if you want to tell me you have desires that were there since birth, hey, I've got desires that were there since birth for me too. And I am not permitted to give in to those desires just because I see them present in my life. They're to be submitted to Christ, submitted to his lordship. These people seek immortal desires and they deny authority, Jude tells us. They deny authority. Because they defile the flesh, they reject authority, they blaspheme the glorious ones. They demand to rule their own lives. Now, he doesn't expound upon this, but I see this more and more creeping up in, in church culture today. People that want to remove themselves from elder-type leadership in a church and kind of do church their way. Hey, we're going to just stay at home. We're just going to read the Bible together. We're going to have our own church, and we're not going to be under any type of leadership. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. I talked with a person recently from Trinity that was sharing with me all kinds of, of doctrine that is not found in Scripture. And it's flowing out of the fact that they are not submitted to any type of biblical authority. They're doing things their way, doing things on their own. And it breeds false doctrine. These people reject authority. Whether it's Jesus' authority, whether it's biblical authority from eldership, they reject it. Number seven, they operate from ignorance. They operate from ignorance. They blaspheme the glorious ones, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. We'll come back to that section. Verse 10. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. We're not really clued in on to what they are doing. Um, I think we're responsible for doing and knowing what is revealed to us here. We're not told exactly how they're speaking against angels. It says they blaspheme the glorious ones. We're given an example of uh, the glorious ones in a situation where a lack of blasphemy happens or a lack of uh, speaking against happens. Um, it says that these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. We know what's destroying them is their sexual passions. But they're talking about things that they don't fully understand. We're not, again, clued into what exactly they're saying about angels. Um, there's speculation that there was maybe an attack going back to their lack of authority and their uh, perverting of grace. It was a Jewish tradition and understanding that the law... While it comes from God, it flowed through the instrument of angels to them. So in Hebrews 2, 2, it says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So there was a tradition that the angels were somehow involved in the giving of the law. Not that the angels are the source of authority for the law, but in some way, God uses them to, to bring the law to Israel. 
So there may have been an attack on angels, which was ultimately an attack on God's law. So there was maybe an attack on the mediators of those that were bringing the law to the Israelites. Again, we're not fully told here what's happening. What I would caution, the, the, the thing that I kind of take from it, and, and I think it's a good rule of thumb, to be very cautious of people who seem to be very authoritative in their angelology. People that seem to put great emphasis on angels and demons and seem to have knowledge that some of the best scholars would not claim to have, maybe just a good rule of thumb to steer clear. Um, one of the person that I'm referencing that's not under authority, that seems to be doing things their own way, that's all we talked about was angels and demons. Um, and, and so it, it may just be a good rule of thumb that, hey, Scripture's not real clear a lot about angels and demons, right? Like there's a lot of unanswered questions. And so be cautious about those that seek to make definitive authoritative statements about angels and demons that seems to steer from Scripture. We'll come back to the Michael account here in just a minute. Um, ultimately, in these seven things, ungodliness, grace being perverted, lordship being denied, all these things, there's two issues that, are, that these can be tied to. There's an issue of interpretation and an issue of inspiration. Interpretation and inspiration. These people, their doctrine is coming from the fact that they have issues with inspiration, they haven't submitted themselves to the authority of God's word, and they're misinterpreting it. These are two crucial things that elders are supposed to perform in the local church. They're supposed to submit to God's word as the ultimate authority, and they are to interpret it rightly for the people. What you have here in the midst of these false teachers are people who are not submitted to authority, right? So they're not submitted to the inspiration of Scripture, and they're perverting doctrine, which means they don't know how to interpret it correctly. So all these issues that are being dealt with by Jude can be traced back to a lack of inspiration and a lack of interpretation. That's why we need elders so desperately in our church to protect us from these type of issues. So these are the people that we're to be cautious of. The implication for us is that we must guard against falling. We must guard against falling so we look at this and it all seems pretty obvious okay like we're not going to fall into this mindset we're not going to fall prey to this first corinthians ten twelve says therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall so if there's any desire inside of you to say hey i get this i'm not in danger of this paul says if you're that person then you need to be listening because you're subjected to fall, potentially. You need to be on guard. Second Peter three seventeen through 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is why it's so important for us to embrace those growth plans that we talked about here in January. What's your plan to grow this year? What do you plan to read? What do you plan to study? Because that's ultimately how we protect ourselves from falling away and becoming unstable. We have to be growing in our knowledge and understanding of Christ. The more we grow, the more stable we are, and we're not subjected to fall away like these passages talk about. Hebrews three twelve through 13 Talks about the importance of accountability, the, the fact that we need each other to protect ourselves. Take care, brothers, 
lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We can't even be so bold to say that I don't need others. I'm secure in my salvation. I know who Jesus is. I can recognize false teachers. I don't have to be in a local church for protection. Author of Hebrews says you've got to have each other or else you're going to potentially fall prey to an unbelieving heart. Evilness can creep in. Your heart can become hardened. You need each other to protect from that. All right, let's look at how Jude gets this this idea across. The need to contend first is timeless. And secondly, we're going to see the need to contend is urgent. So we've seen the why aspect. The danger is very real. False doctrines, false teachers are present. This is what they're wanting to teach. This is the type of lifestyles they live. But Jude refers to history to reinforce this idea. He wants us to understand that apostasy has always been here. There is a running band of rebels throughout time that has opposed God's plan to save This isn't something new that springs up in the end times. This is consistent from day one. There's always been a string of rebels, a group that opposes salvation. Even people that are a part of God's people come out of this. And we're going to see examples. Apostasy has always been here, people that fall away. What's encouraging and comforting to us is that their future is determined. Jude tells us this. He says, they were long ago designated for condemnation. 2 Peter 2, 3-6 also highlights the fact that their eternity has been determined. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah... If he, didn't preserve, if he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. It's evident in Scripture that God brings judgment. Condemnation has dawned just like salvation. So we talk about salvation being here, but not fully here until Jesus comes back. Condemnation is also here. God brings wrath and judgment upon this earth. It's dawned just like salvation, but it's not fully here yet. And so the warning here is that if you continue on this path, false teacher, you are headed to destruction because that condemnation has been in place. It will happen. So you've got to get off that path if you want to get off before it gets here. That's the truth that Jude communicates to us. Jude portrays ancient events as happening again with the same ending being played out in the near future. He references these little judgments leading to a greater big judgment in the future. Number one, he talks about some major events. Number two, he talks about major villains. And then number three, we're going to see that he talks about major heroes to draw our attention to these truths. Number one, major events. This is corporate apostasy. He says, although you once fully knew it, verse 5, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. First, we have apostate Israel. So under the first major event, we have apostate Israel. They did not believe. We could call these people the defectors from the covenant. 
They were in a covenant with God. It had been established at Sinai, but they defect from the covenant. If you want to jot down the passage that's being referenced here, it's Numbers 14, 26 through 38. I would encourage you to read this on your own time. This is the historical account of what happens. Numbers 14, 26 through 38. God has saved Israel. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. His presence is very obvious and evident if you read the account. Sinai is is like Mount Doom in a sense. I mean, it's just some crazy stuff happening. People are submitted in reverence and fear to God. He's communicating the law. Moses comes down. He's completely changed. He's got the, he's got the law for the people. They start heading to the promised land. They get to the edge of the promised land, ready to go in. The spies come back, give a report, and they opt not to go in. They, they, they choose not to go. They're, they're unbelieving. Even though they've heard from God, even though they've witnessed what God is capable of doing, even though they've seen God deliver them from cities and people on the way to the promised land, they hesitate, they balk. And God says, I'm going to destroy every single one of you. Everybody that's over 20 will not enter the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. They defect from the covenant. They opt out. They fall away. When it comes time to show that their faith is real, they demonstrate that it's not. They knew good things about God, but ultimately, these people never let go of Egypt. Right? Like they were constantly talking about going back, and that's the conversation that happens. They say, you know what? We're not going in there. We're going back to Egypt. This is a classic case of the sower and the seed. This is the person who says, yeah, I'm all in. Oh, no, I'm not really all in. I'm looking back. I'm like Lot's wife. I want to go back to where we were. These are people that come to church. These are people that join our church. These are people that when things get difficult or the things of the world come back, they turn around and say, you know what, I'm going back. I'm not all in. I said I was, but I'm not. I'm going back. They didn't lose their salvation. They just showed they never were saved. The people of Israel were part of the covenant. But as we continue to learn, as, as God's redemptive history unfolds, there was real Israel that was a part of national Israel. And so you had a lot of people that weren't really all in. You had a remnant that was, and we see that these part, this part wasn't. And God destroys them. God punishes them for their lack of belief. Secondly, we have apostate angels. Angels that were not content. Verse 6, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. These are defectors from God's glory. You have defectors from the covenant. That's the Israelites. Now you have people that defect from God's glory. These angels desired what was not theirs. And they're now chained to authority until Jesus returns. Their condemnation, their future is set. Now, what's being referenced here? There's three views, and we'll talk about them briefly. We probably won't reach a definite conclusion. View number one is this is referencing something that we have absolutely no detail about. That's kind of the easy answer. We have no idea what this is talking about. View number two is this is when the angels fell with Lucifer um, from heaven to this earth. They left their position of authority. They, they went with Satan. There was a war in heaven. They were cast out. The third option comes from Genesis 6 where the sons of God uh, have sexual relations with the daughters of men. Um, and so the popular theory, the popular idea there is that angel or demons 
um, either possessed men, men or took on the form of men so that they could engage in sexual activity, something that was not possible as angels. Um, there, there's a lot of credence for that view uh, because we know that something very evil was happening at that time. The other alternate view is that it was godly men having sex with ungodly women, which doesn't seem to necessitate God's quick action with a flood. Not to say that that wouldn't be evil for just uh, ungodly sex to be happening. It seems to be a little bit more serious, and, and it seems that the giants that are talked about are tied to this intercourse. Just because you have a godly man and an ungodly woman, they're not producing giants, right? Like their offspring aren't just necessarily giant individuals. Now, I'm, I'm prone to, to, to accept that view. The only problem that I have is that there are giants that continue after the flood, and I'm not exactly sure where they would come from in relation to this because technically everybody would have been wiped out except for Noah's family. Um, this is one of those issues where I don't think it's necessary for us to know exactly how these details are being played out. What is needed is for us to get the big picture idea here. The big picture idea is that these angels were not content and they were not submitted to God's authority. They knew good things of God and they revolted. And God has not changed his plans for them. That's the other main idea here. Judah's wanting to show that people that are apostate, that fall away, they have condemnation coming. Even if you go all the way back to when the angels first fell from heaven, or if you go back to Genesis 6, for thousands of years, these angels have been held in some type of uh, gloomy darkness, some type of chain where their condemnation is assured that when Jesus comes back and we deal with everything, these guys are going to be dealt with as well. That's the big picture idea that we have to get from that. Exactly what's happening there, we can speculate, we could dialogue, we could do several weeks on this. Ultimately, it doesn't change what we've got to take from it. These people weren't, these angels were not submitted to authority, they were discontent, and their condemnation is assured. They serve as an example to people who don't submit to authority today that aren't content that they too will get condemnation. Um, next is apostate Gentiles, apostate Gentiles, Sodom and Gomorrah is referenced. Now these people are defectors from the truth. So you got covenant, you've got God's glory, angels that are in the presence of God. And now you have defectors from truth. These are the Gentiles. These are the people in Romans that don't have God's law, but they have truth and they ignore the truth. Now I found this very interesting. You don't have this in scripture but if you start to try to piece together genealogies and time frames and you try to put together who's alive at what time, because, see, we're conditioned to think one story's over, that person no longer is alive, new story, right? Like I was talking with some people recently that um, you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham's alive when Jacob's alive. But you don't hear that in your, in your Sunday school story. You, you stop talking about Abraham because now we're talking about Isaac and then we're going to talk about Jacob and you lose sight of the fact that Jacob's granddad's alive. Abraham's still around. What's really interesting here is that Shem, Noah's son, it's very likely that he's still alive when Sodom and Gomorrah get judged. Now why is that relevant? Because Shem comes off the ark and there's nobody else but him and his family. So we kind of start all over with Christians, right? Like people that submit to God. These people, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were descendants of Shem and his brothers. And they've, they've defected from truth. 
They've walked away from truth and they're now living in immorality. These aren't ignorant people that had never heard of God. They heard of God from their from their ancestors that are still alive at this time, potentially. And they're not interested in Yahweh. They're not interested in doing things God's way. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to do things however we want to. They're immoral. You can read about them in Genesis 19. They're the ultimate example of God's judgment. They're referenced throughout Scripture. It says that they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Now, the way that it's referenced here, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, is linked back to the angel situation. So a lot of people speculate here that the correlation is you had angels that came down that wanted to have sex with man. You have in Sodom and Gomorrah men that want to have sex with angels. Remember, lots visitors that come in, and you've got a group of men that are ready to uh, take these guys by force. Like leadership in the city. This is how debased they were. Leadership in the city shows up and says, hey, we want our turn with these guys. And, and Jude says this is unnatural. It's unnatural because it was probably homosexual, but it was also unnatural because they were angels. And it may be that a link's being tied here that you had, uh, in the first instance, angels with men. Now you've got men with angels. And Jude says it's all wrong. It's all evidence of people that aren't submitted to authority, that are living like animals, living with, with sensual desires and lust. He said, this is the type of stuff that flows from false teaching. People are uncontrolled. They don't submit to authority. What's true about this city is that they were judged for this. And Jude again calls our attention to the fact that these people that submit to these false teachings that live this way in today's day and age will also be destroyed. So the highlights from these major events, there's unbelief, there's rebellion, there's sexual sin in all three of these cases, and it all gets punished, and it will all be punished in the future for things that are going on today now. Jude says, don't lose sight of the fact this has been happening for years. People have been unbelievers. They have not submitted to authority. They've been engaged in sexual sins, and God always punishes it. God has set the precedent that he will always punish it, and he will continue to punish it moving forward. Second, major villains. So he gives us three Old Testament big stories then he references three old testament people for us it says in verse 11 woe to them for they walked in the way of cain and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to balaam's error and they perished in korah's rebellion these major villains they're all teachers of sin cain's accounts in genesis 4 3 through 7 we know he's ungodly he made up his own way of doctrine. He did not submit to God's way of worship, God's way of sacrifices. Makes up his own way. He changes God's word to meet his needs. He, um, he wants to show the fruits of his effort, which we know is so contrary to the gospel that our good works can never appease God. That was Cain's mindset, ungodly, and he's punished to wander. There's a correlation here. Apostate Israel wandered too in the wilderness until they were all dead. Cain is cursed to wander in the wilderness until he dies as well. So we have big picture, group of people that do this. Single individual Cain, another example, doing the same thing, punished the same way. Secondly, we have Balaam. Balaam, you can read about Balaam in Numbers 31. He's also referenced in Revelation 2.14. Here's what Balaam ultimately does. He's a prophet of God. He is called upon by an enemy king to come curse Israel because this enemy king is scared of Israel. 
Balaam says, how much are you going to pay me? Okay, I want to come do this. But God says, you're not doing this. And so he shows up and he just ends up blessing Israel. He, he gives these oracles of blessing. And, and Balak is frustrated. He's like, I didn't pay you to come over here and, and bless Israel. You're supposed to bring curses of judgment upon them. So Balaam says, look, my hands are tied. I can't, I can't do what you want me to do. God won't let me. But here's what you can do. If you can tempt these people to fall into sexual sin, God will be angry with them and he will punish them. So Balak says, okay. So he sends these sensual women into their camp, draws them into sensual worship. All kinds of ungodly sex happens, and Israel gets punished for it. Balaam sacrifices what he was supposed to be for the sake of money. And that's what these false teachers are guilty of. They're motivated by money, not by truth. They're motivated by personal gain, by material wealth, not by anything spiritual. Balaam is like Sodom and Gomorrah, and he too is consumed when his city is destroyed by God as punishment for what took place. Next, we have Korah. Korah can be read about in number 16. Korah is Moses' cousin, and he denies Moses' authority. The classic case of somebody who didn't get picked, and now he's angry. He doesn't get picked to be in leadership, and so now he tries to present this truth that we shouldn't have leadership. We're all our own priests. We don't need Moses. We don't need Aaron. We don't need anybody over us. We're our own people. We can commune with God without these, without these people helping us. Now, ultimately, what he wanted was he wanted to be Aaron. He wanted to be one of these guys in leadership. Had he been placed in leadership, his whole tune would have changed. It would have been, you submit to my authority. But he's a classic case of somebody that doesn't like to submit to authority, and he leads others in this type of teaching as well. And he says, don't submit to Moses. Don't submit to Aaron. And God consumes him. The, the earth opens up and swallows him. And his family and the ones that he had convinced to, to follow his doctrine. It correlates very well with the angels that are in gloomy darkness until Jesus comes back. If they're truly pictured as being in the center of the earth where, where hell is usually viewed to be type of thing, then they are uh, correlated there with Korah being swallowed by the earth. Picture is very similar in these punishments tying in with these individuals to the corporate pictures. But we have some major heroes in this passage too. And there's two things we can take away from that. Number one, contend with humility in mind. So there's a lot of danger. There's a lot of false teaching, a lot of condemnation that's coming. We have to be very careful. We have to, as we contend for the faith, make sure we don't fall into this. A lot of bad stuff going on. We have to contend with humility. Go back to the Moses and his body being thought about with Michael and Satan. Weird story, not in Scripture. Comes from apocryphal type books. Um, obviously, Jude felt it was valid enough, truthful enough to reference as a point in what he was trying to communicate. What you have here is Moses' body being fought over. The idea here from, from historical tradition from these other books is that Satan wanted Moses' body because he had murdered the Egyptian. So basically, Satan felt like he had the right to his body because Moses was not justified before God. And we know that God buries Moses. Nobody knows where his body is. That was for Israel's protection, most likely. Because Israel would have been very tempted to venerate his body as an act of worship, which they do later with the staff and the serpent wrapped around. They end up worshiping it later on. It served its purpose. It was hung on to to be a reminder. They end up using it as an idol. And so 
God very graciously hides Moses' body so that it doesn't become an idol. It's possible that Satan wanted it so that he could lead Israel into idolatry with that body. We're not told when this story happens. We're not told the details of how it happens. It's not contained for us in Scripture. What is given to us and what we do need to take away is how Michael interacts with Satan. Look what it says. Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, Michael doesn't stay silent, but he doesn't speak from his own authority here. He submits to Jesus' authority. Now, it's incorrect to say that Satan and Jesus are opposite because they are infinitely not even the same thing. You could make an argument that Satan and Michael are opposite. They're created beings. They're they're angels. Um, One has extreme authority in heaven. One has been stripped of that authority and now has it here on this earth. Uh, They're contending here. And Michael could have very easily tried to gain or tried to use his authority to speak against Satan, but he submits to Jesus on this. As we contend for the faith, we have to be mindful and humble in the fact that we contend from the authority of Jesus and not our own knowledge, not our own right to fight for the gospel. We have to be humble in our contending. I believe that's what Jude wants us to draw from that account. The last hero that he references is Enoch. So we contend with humility. We contend with the future in mind. Again, this prophecy in verse 14 is not for us in Scripture. It comes from extra-biblical sources. It's a prophecy from Enoch about judgment coming in the future. Now, there is a tradition that Methuselah, whose name means when he is dead, it shall be sent. Methuselah is Enoch's son. That Enoch so named him that because when Methuselah died, the flood would come. That God's judgment would, would be brought to this earth. Tradition has it that Methuselah, or Scripture says Methuselah lived 969 years. Tradition has it that he died seven days before the flood came. So it's very possible that Enoch was clued into coming judgment, prophesied about it, named his son accordingly, that he was very in tune with what God was doing. Now again, this stuff comes from extra-biblical sources. Jude obviously saw it as valid enough to include here, but it's a warning about coming judgment in the future as well. We're reminded that Jesus is coming personally, not as a catastrophe, right? Like Sodom and Gomorrah, judged with catastrophe. Korah, judged with catastrophe. Jesus is coming one day to bring judgment personally, not through catastrophe. He will show up personally and deal with everything. He's coming with his holy ones. We talked in First and Second Thessalonians, that's probably angels and saints. He's coming visibly. He's coming to bring judgment. He's going to convict. There will be no jury. There will be no defense. Romans says every mouth will be shut because everyone will know they are guilty before him. Judgment is coming upon this false teaching. The need to contend is timeless and it's urgent. Apostasy will continue to increase. We'll close with this part. We must watch out for the fake shepherd and we must cling to the good shepherd. Look how Jude describes these people. They are hidden reefs at your love feast as they, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. 
Jesus is the good shepherd. He's a rock of salvation. He's living waters. He's a tree of life. He leads us to still waters. He's the morning star. But Jude describes these individuals as hidden reefs. They are like coral reefs that lie under the water that boats cannot see that will rip their hull apart and cause them to sink. They're treacherous and they're dangerous. Um, I experience this all the time when I'm mowing my grass in the backyard. You've got rocks and stuff that are underneath there. You can't see it and you run over it and it's a disaster. That's what these people are. They're hidden. They're lying underneath the surface. They're hidden reefs and they are a disaster to the faith. It says that they are... um, Fake shepherds because they feed themselves. They don't feed the sheep. They feed themselves. They're there for the money. They're there for the personal gain. They're rainless clouds. Proverbs twenty five fourteen references this. They, they, they offer no refreshment. They offer the promise of rain, but they don't deliver. Jesus is the living water. They're fruitless trees. They don't produce fruit, and they don't have a root. They're wild sea waves that produce filth. Isaiah 57 talks about when the storm of the waves come, they bring in the trash from the sea, right? You may have been on vacation before. You go out. This happens all the time in Panama City. You get there on day one, and it's crystal clear. You have a thunderstorm, and the next day there's seaweed everywhere, right? Like sea waves bring in this junk. And that's what he references these people as. They bring in the filth. They're, they're wild sea waves with their foam. They're wandering stars. They're like shooting stars. They're worthless. It's a worthless flash. We need stars that are set in place. Um, uh, Sailors use them for direction, right? A a shooting star offers no direction, no consistency. They're, They're here and gone in no time. Jesus is the great morning star. He provides our ultimate direction. The implication for us, the spirit of apostasy is attacking our community and our church, whether through individual teachers or a wandering cultural mindset told you at the very beginning we may not have blatant false teachers that come into our community like this but the spirit of apostasy is here the draw to return to egypt the draw to return to a life of sin is present in our culture and we contend against it as we seek to advance the gospel we contend against this spirit of apostasy Jude says in verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. The application for us, two things, be cautious and be urgent. Be cautious and be urgent. It would be wrong for us to look at all these warnings and all this evil and say, well, I'm not getting in there. I'm not contending with the faith. We do have a responsibility to be cautious We have a responsibility to be urgent. I told you that people are beating us to our neighborhoods. They're beating us to our apartment complexes with false teaching. We've got to get there before they do. We've got to fix what they've already distorted. We're also not immune from this spirit of apostasy infiltrating our church. Now, again, I don't believe that we're going to have false teachers But this spirit of apostasy can be very present in our church. And it's able to claim people within our church. And we'll close with with this because I want to lead us in prayer. Um, Many of you guys know um, he began to pursue membership about a year ago, kind of started the process a little bit, and then um, began to fall away 
in the fall. Um, and it's kind of a unique situation because we've talked about church discipline before with you guys. And it's a unique situation because never fulfilled the process of membership. And so we never really kind of wrapped all that up with him as far as gospel communication, understanding his salvation. You've asked us to be uh, spiritual authority in your life. But he was in the process. And, and we believe that because no other church takes responsibility for him, that it is our, our responsibility uh, to assume spiritual responsibility for him. Um, due to some... Uh, choices that are contrary to to God's word, specifically in the area of relationships. Um, And I don't want to give you more detail than you need, but I believe you need detail because this is being brought to the church as an act of obedience to what Christ calls us to. That we have an individual who came to be a part of our church that that needs our prayers, that needs our intervention where it's appropriate. chose to to make choices that are inconsistent with scripture in the area of relationships specifically uh, in his accountability group begin to pursue a relationship with with a girl that is uh, vocally adamantly i'm not a believer i don't have intentions of following christ um, and, and essentially communicated to him I plan to lead you away from following christ as well with the things that i want to um, to be a part of with you and so accountability groups stepped in, um, have been trying to communicate, cut off communication with most of us here at the church. Um, we were not going to bring it to the church until the accountability group had an opportunity to speak with him personally. And so this week they went to his uh, workplace to try to get him to go to dinner with them, to sit down and talk with them. And I said he couldn't do it that night, but would be willing to do it today. Uh, but as soon as he was out of their presence, texted me and texted them about how angry he was that our church was coming after him, that he would not communicate with us and would be willing to tell us when he was ready to communicate if that time ever came. This is practical application for what we're talking about here. Okay, this isn't just lofty knowledge. Here's what Jude's talking about. We have an individual who has been bitten by the spirit of apostasy, someone who has fallen away from the faith, who came to this church and was seemingly asking for us to help protect him. And so the reason that I bring it before you is, one, we're not okay with people just walking away because of sin. And so we could leave it unsaid, and you guys would just wonder, I wonder why it never came back. Like, where is it? Does anybody even know where it is? We know where it is. And it's not a good situation. And so we're letting you know as his church family that you need to be in prayer for, for those that have a relationship with we're appealing to you to contact through written form, whether that's through Facebook, whether that's through texting. Uh, he's made it very clear he doesn't want any personal visitors. And we want to respect that privacy without just allowing him to make this choice on his own. So we want to send him thoughts, send him communication in a way that he can receive it and, and do with it what he wants to without um, violating his privacy any further. My, my my appeal to you guys is that you pray whether you're in that group that can contact him or not. For some, obviously, it would be completely odd because you, you don't have that kind of relationship with him. Um, it's not a part of a church. doesn't seem to be pursuing any type of church relationship. For all practical purposes, he's very much like who we lost um, probably two year, about almost two years ago now to the same type of situation. It's the same type of stuff that's being taught here, the perversion of grace, that... 
hey, I can claim to be a Christian, but then I can make choices and decisions about, about sex and relationships and do things the way I want to do them and not the way that Christ calls me to do them. There's a lack of submission to our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want you praying for We want those that it's appropriate to contact. Um, We want to pray that through his absence, that if he's a believer, the Holy Spirit will bring him back. And if he's not a believer, that others will come in contact with him with the gospel and that he can be drawn to Christ to salvation. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for the warnings that you've given us in the book of Jude. We're we're mindful of the fact that we live in a day and age where there is false teaching and apostasy constantly around us. God, we're well aware of the fact that our church has been bitten by this already in our our young history. Father, we want to lift up to you this morning. We want to appeal to you for his soul. God, if he is a believer, if the Holy Spirit indwells him, we know that he is called and we know that he is being kept for the return of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray for his timely return to either this church family or to another Bible-believing church family in this area. But, God, we also recognize that he may not be a believer, that this may be evidence of the fact that he is not submitted to you. And, God, we're praying that the gospel would confront him God, that you would expose him to the fact that he cannot, he cannot claim Christ and then deny him ethically with his life. And God, I'm thankful for the time that we had to get to know him. And I know that many in this church love and desire for his repentance and his ultimate salvation to come about. So, Father, we're praying for that this morning. God, give us wisdom as a church to know how to serve him, to know how to reach out to him. God, give us wisdom in knowing how to communicate to him, what to communicate to him. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would not allow him to sleep until this is resolved. God, that you would impress upon him the need to get things right with you. God, for his accountability group, I pray that you would continue to give them a desire and a passion to reach him that they would not allow the the, the events of this week to ultimately discourage them, that they would not walk away from this situation, but instead they would contend for the faith and the life. God, as we'll see next week, you desire for us to snatch souls from hell. So we're praying for that this morning. And God, I pray that you would protect all of us from instability, that our knowledge of Christ would, would increase that through the, the church here striving to do life together, God, that you would encourage us faithfully and constantly to persevere until the very end. God, help us not to, to fall prey to these Old Testament examples of apostasy. God, help us to be content. Help us to be submitted to authority, ultimately your authority. God, protect us from our own sinful sexual desires, Father. I pray that we would be submitted to you on the authority of those things. All these things in in our Master and Lord and Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the Word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.